everybody welcome back to the what is money show i am thrilled and honored to be sitting down today with mr alexander bard alexander is a author and philosopher on the relationship between human beings and technology and as i understand it uh you're working on your sixth and seventh books at the moment is that right alex that's correct and i'm honored to be here robert it's very very good to have you um as i was mentioning to you offline i have some some philosophical curiosities that I'm hoping we can pick at today. Um, maybe we could start with something general here. So I've been releasing this metaphysics of quality series, which is covering um, Robert Persick's book, Leela. And he's basically laying out an alternative metaphysics to Aristotle's subject object duality, um, positing that everything is value instead of actual substance. So it's a real rabbit hole to go into, but maybe I can just pick your brain a little bit about how you see, what is your metaphysical viewpoint on the world and who, who have, who has been influential to your thinking and what books or writing have, have influenced your thinking? Well, the problem metaphysics, especially today is that it tends to fall into one or two extremes. Uh, it's either reduced down to some kind of mysterious lowest common denominator, like some kind of atom or something like, or a string or whatever, right? And then somehow it's going to be that thing all the way up, its most complex forms. Mm. Or other, because we're human, we tend to think of ourselves as people, everything that exists, and therefore our consciousness is the whole incredibly important and then we try to find consciousness in absolutely everything all the way down like i always say that uh, some philosophers tend to think that they can sleep and have sex with a rock <laughs> they just they find psyche in everything so the problem with one extreme is called panpsychism and the other extreme is just basically everything is physical all the way down lowest common denominator so um uh i think that both these aspects are wrong i'd like to start in the middle all right, to start in between things. That's a better place to start when you do philosophy. You start in the present, for example, then you can work your way towards history and you can work your way towards the future. Uh, but I'd like to start in the middle of the state. And then you discover that when you do metaphysics, you're not doing physics, right? You can question physics itself, and it turns out that even physicists are questioning physics today. Mm. There's a wide agreement now in physics that things don't really start with space time. And please mm. note how, how weird this sounds because space time, right? You always assume that time is tied to space mm -hmm. and therefore there cannot be time without space and there can be no space without time. That's, be, that's because Einstein well, was comfortable when he did his mathematics or cosmology to, to, to think of space and time at different dimensions that were tied together. Uh, but that's not actually how reality works. It, it turns out that it's, it's not, not just that space time isn't the first thing, but because something is prior to space time, that also has to be something along the timeline. And, and therefore, these days, we talk about hypertime with physicists. Philosophers talk about these things constantly. Like, so there are obviously things that aren't even physics. Uh, so therefore, the kind of metaphysics we're developing now is just, let's disqualify these different categories and just look at physics and biology and chemistry and consciousness, or whatever you got separately, and then try to see, do they have anything in common? Well, the only thing they have in common is that they're part of the same universe. And we know that everything we know so far is interdependent with everything else. Mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no law that says they must be that way, but it turns out from all we know, everything is interdependent. 
to everything else, especially because they all affect each other through gravity, which is really mm. fascinating. So when you start looking at it that way, you can disqualify physics as first principle. You can disqualify psyche as first principle. You can rather say you can neutrally look at these things in different ways. And the kind of um, metaphysics I'm working with is something called transcendental emergence. What it means is that all we know is that things emerge. Mm. The universe itself has emerged. We used mm. to think it was a big bang. It's more and more looking likely that it's a big bounce. Mm. Um, you know, the equations over the past 10, 15 years, like Bourgeois's equation for 2011, show that if you just eliminate infinity, we actually doesn't exist in the way of nature, it turns out that it looks like it was a big bounce. So something collapsed or something happened and caused the big bang. And there could even be laps between the big bounce itself and the first expansion of space. So when you look at it very, very deeply and you realize you must minimize the, the categories that could possibly pass through different emergencies. And the only thing they all have in common is the timeline. And that's why physics, also natural sciences, have moved aggressively away from a focus on space over to time. The way you would describe it is to say that Einstein wasn't wrong about space-time, it was wrong about the order. The mm. first dimension should be time. Then you could happily add another three space dimensions on time. Time must be the first category. And if you think of time without space, if you allow yourself to do that, it's essentially the time without mass, if you talk to physicists and That category is now called hypertime. You can then think of hypertime as something separate without space, but space requires time. Nothing can exist without a timeline, except for time itself. So you can then add space to hypertime and then get space time. And when physicists start working with us philosophers, they, they think, okay, great. We could probably start doing mathematics on this. We could probably try to figure out eventually, can this be tested? Can this be verified? Or can this be a theory that at least can survive other theories? Oh, we implode and disappear. And that's when it gets interesting. And, and for example, Lee Small in his work with Roberto Mangabeira Unger, who is like the Brazilian equivalent of me. So sometimes we philosophers work with physicists, or with biologists for that matter. Stuart Calvin, for example, who's worked a lot on complexity theory and system theory. It came out of biology, didn't come out of physics. So you can work with the different natural sciences. You can work even potentially with the different social sciences as a philosopher. But the way we look at the world these days, increasingly, like, let's study each of these emergences on its own. Like, when did chemistry first happen? Okay, what came out of that? And then after the emergence has occurred, you call that an emergence victory. And then you can discover that there are no laws of nature per se. Mm. Laws of nature are only local. So if chemistry suddenly appears in history, and the chemistry vector then develops out of that, there are certain laws for chemistry to behave in certain ways. It turns out what was a habit in a universe prior to chemistry becomes laws after chemistry has occurred. Mm. So we can then define what laws of nature are. And here's a great philosopher, the American philosopher, Charles Saunders Peirce from the 19th century. He was the first guy to claim that, no, there are only habits of nature, there are no laws. Of nature. Mm. We don't know what really happens over long, long, long periods. We don't know if laws actually stay the same or whatever. And, and when we look at it today, that was really helpful because a habit of nature that is prior to the world becomes a law of nature within that world. And then we developed the full metaphysics of this called transcendental emergence. So what exists are emergences and emergence. It's transcendental because new emergences could happen. Mm. It's also transcendental because 
you cannot say you cannot say anything generally about emergency. You cannot have a general emergency theory because a new emergency might have happened. And once a new emergency happened, you have to redesign the entire history leading up to that emergency because mm. you will then understand the prior emergencies differently. Hmm. Hegel did this wonderfully. That's why a lot of guys are reading Hegel these days, because in the early 19th century in Germany, Hegel said that the past is always a necessity to us because it's fixed, but the future is always contingent, open. Mm-hmm. That's why there's freedom when we're looking to the, into the future, but there's no freedom to redirect the past. And, stuff, mm-hmm. right? and you could even apply that on nature itself. And then you get a transcendental idea that, for example, if God suddenly occurred, I don't believe God exists. I don't believe God created the world. But God is a good word for something unthinkable to happen. For example, technology could develop into becoming a God. And then God might kill his humans and take over the universe and then conquer all the planets and do everything we ever dreamed of because it's going to probably going to be something way superior to us. But we might not even be part of it, or we might be a zoo on a certain planet. You know, God will probably do with us what God wants when God suddenly occurs. But say God is an emergency. Suddenly, God, God comes out of the technology that we create today. Suddenly, God's there. And then if God exists, then we have to rewrite all of history because then all of history was obviously about that one day God would appear. Mm. It's the only way we can understand history in hindsight. So the transcendentality is that you minimize the rules for emergencies per se. The only rule you basically got is there's a timeline. Along that timeline, things happen. It goes mm. in one direction, it's an arrow of time. And along the arrow of time, Things can occur, and when they occur, they will then, in hindsight, change the history. Hmm. And by doing this, you don't have to start with physics. You don't have to start with your psyche. You don't have to start with biology. You can start anywhere you like. Now, the really productive aspect of that is you can also redesign our own history as humans the same way. And then you do, like Thomas Kuhn did, you do paradigm shifts. Suddenly, new technology has been developed. It changes history forever. It changes what it means to be human. The introduction of spoken language made us human to begin with. It made us different from apes. That's about only 200, 250,000 years ago. Then we invented written language in eight to 10,000 years ago. That changed history forever. We created permanent settlements and agriculture and all kinds of complex things that we couldn't do as long as we only spoke and memorized. When we started writing down information, we could have a much more complex society. We have larger populations. You know, Starting in Mesopotamia, populations of river valleys across Eurasia exploded because once you started farming, you could breed large families and have tons of kids. Mm. And you could go to war with huge armies. You could create empires, nations, all kinds of things. Then the printing press came along important. That was another paradigm shift, another new paradigm, because suddenly the printing press, was, within 100 years, the cost of making a book fell from $160,000 per copy down to 30 cents. Huh. suddenly there were a lot more books around uh-huh. a lot of people could afford to learn how to read write and count we created capitalism we uh-huh. created industrialism we even got a new metaphysical idea called individualism based on that uh-huh. we created something called the united states of america because of that uh-huh. it would never have existed without the printing press and i think the internet now as a fourth paradigm in human history is on a par with that uh-huh. i think with starting the 1980s it's such a massive revolution that we have to start thinking, what does it mean to be a totally new type of human being, a digital human being? Mm. We're going to be so different from our forefathers that we have to rethink what it means to be different. Hmm. 
That's yeah. why metaphysics is important. You see the point? Because when you start thinking history, you start thinking value, and start thinking what's important, what is it that's not important, but where are we going to focus our attention? Metaphysics is where we have to start. Mm. Wow, really a lot of interesting things you said there. I One question I have, well, I guess first a comment. So I, I'm understanding this phenomena, phenomenon of emergence, I guess, as a dialectical process that's writing its own rules to some extent. And that's why we can't know anything about a future emergence because it could, it just write, it writes itself new rules effectively. And then I guess you just tell me if that's right or wrong. And then the, the question I have is, so you're saying that we can use hyper time, I guess, as our, our, our bedrock on which to build a worldview. Can we verify that time exists independent of consciousness? Is that even possible? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Everything exists independent of consciousness until consciousness occurs. Consciousness is its own emergence. Mm. And there is a world without consciousness. It's called the ancestral world. Ancestrality. Mm. The, the French philosopher Quentin Melasso came up with this great term to find his all issues. And, well, ancestrality is a world where consciousness doesn't exist. Mm. Undoubtedly, most of the universe is that way anyway. So, so, so um, if consciousness suddenly occurs somewhere, which is a very complex thing, and we start to sort this out. And by the way, consciousness itself is, has so many layers that it's worth its own philosophy on its own theory of mind. But um, yeah, sure. No, the world exists independently of us, undoubtedly. But, but, but anything else is kind of ridiculous. How we then interpret the world, understand the world, and what sense we make was Immanuel Kant's great achievement. After, after the Kantian revolution of the 18th century, there's no way back. We, we, there's a noumenal world out there. There's a phenomenal world that we create to ourselves. And we actually create it socially. We create it in between each other. We create it through language and shared dreams and and actually, we match each other really well in the sense that we we sort of we sort of fit our different worldviews with each other until we sort of agree on it. And then we have test questions, and we shift test all the time, like women do with men. We shift test each other, so we figure it out that actually, no, 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 this guy he's he's got a word with it that obviously is very similar to mine, right? So I, I can I can count on the kind of the word the way I perceive the world is probably the way it perceives the world, which is the That changes though the world itself can change, our perception of the world can change. Um, we can live in the world full of bullshit, or we believe that mythologies that are never corrected is the way we perceive the world. We can allow ourselves to live in the world. Children often do. But then when it comes to pure survival, um, when it comes to warfare and things like that, suddenly we have to be logical. Right? We can't have a dreamer to lead an army against the guy who knows what's going on and knows mm. the facts. Mm. the guy who knows the facts going to win the war. And precisely in those environments, we actually train ourselves to separate from in fact, always goes much, much closer to the world around us and how it operates. Fiction allows us to dream and, you know, run off and be created and fantasize about the world instead. So, so between fiction and fact, the fact is called logos in Greek. Mm-hmm. And the fiction is called mythos. Mm-hmm. And actually, and it, one of these triads work with the philosophy all the time is, is there were three different types of narratives. The narratology of humans philosophical discipline, narratology of humans is that there's the logos, which is essentially facts, mathematics, you know, science or sciences, things like that. There's the mythos, which is the stories we tell about ourselves, like a movie or a Netflix series or things like that. It's mythos, mm. telling stories to children, mythos. 
And there's the pathos. There's the third narrative. I always say that the pathos is the kind of narrative you don't want to tell your kids. So the difference between a movie and a snuff movie is that snuff movie is something that happens. That's why it's terrifying to see a terrorist from Islamic State that's a slowly butchering someone, right? Because it's actually happening in real time when you see it. And God, that's called pathical narrative. Pornography is another example, pathical narrative. That's why we don't mix pornography movies because it doesn't make any sense to put the pornographic scene inside a movie. It doesn't make any sense to have pornographic yeah. That's why they're two totally different because the two totally different narratives, right? But the three narratives of logos, pathos, and missiles are the narratives that human beings tell about themselves. Hmm. And um, warfare is warfare art, real art, like genuine art that transforms you, transformative experiences, psychedelic experiences, warfare, sex, they're all in the pathical realm. Then the mythical realm is things that we tell our kids, stories we tell about ourselves. Like when we get married, it's a mythical. Like right. Just symbolically, we, we say that this guy and this woman is, are married and they become a couple and suddenly something has apparently changed because they just got married. That's very mythical. And the logos of the whole thing is basically anything you can cut down to zero. Mm. That's the best way to describe the logos. So in between the, those, that's where we tell our stories. Is there some then something between the sacred and the profane that's distinguishing mythos from pathos? Very often we do. Good question. So it, I, I firmly believe that narratology should be its own philosophical discipline. A lot of philosophers deal with tearing down texts and trying to understand what it is, or you know, and things like that. I, I think I think narratology deserves to be on a par with ethics and metaphysics of the mm. discipline. I think the way we construct our stories about ourselves and the stories we tell about the purposes we have is so important as human beings that narratology shall should be a philosophical. Let me ask you this question then. The so you established that the printing press was a fundamental paradigm shifting technology, basically. Now, again, I talked to Verveke on this topic a little bit, and he has this concept of psychotechnology like in regards to literacy and numeracy. And so what really is interesting about the printing press is it seems like it disseminated psychotechnologies. You know, everyone became more literate uh, and more familiar with numeracy as a result of the invention of the printing press, which decreased the cost of books. I think you said from $160,000 to 30 cents. Is the internet, is that the proper framing for viewing the impactfulness of the internet? Is that it's another set of rails that we can disseminate psychotechnologies and information much more quickly? Well, I think the, the printing press arrived at what's called the Napoleonic power structure. So Napoleon was a clever guy. He came out of the French Revolution, completely underrated, took over France, became a dictator, and then conquered Europe. And the trick was that he constructed an army that was incredibly mobile by making sure that all the guys in his army, including the cannon fodder, could read and write. Mm. He was the first guy to truly understand the power of reading and writing, simply because he had used it himself to get access to power. Mm. He, he was a master at going back to Paris after his battles and declaring himself a victor in front of the tabloids. <laughs> he, he was one of the first media stars. He knew, understood media, right? So he, he amassed enormous power because of it. And after that had happened, the Napoleonic power structure became all the institutions that we had from the age that we now call capitalism or industrialism. Like mm. 
every hospital, every factory, every corporation, every state bureaucracy, they're all modeled after Napoleon's army. Now, Napoleon's army stayed in its place. Radio, television came along, there were electronic media. It didn't really change the power structure because there was some information absorbed from the bottom up, right? Mm -hmm. That made the decisions made at the top much more informed than previously. Mm -hmm. And you could also make the decisions much faster. You didn't have to guess the way you've done in the feudal age. But it was still top-down, mm-hmm. incredibly top-down. Therefore, it was so incredibly efficient. that The nation-states of Europe could conquer the world and essentially populate three other continents because this system was so much more efficient than anything we've seen before. Mm-hmm. So we all knew by the mid-19th century that if you taught all the kids to read and write count, we were much better on all of us. It was a worthy human infrastructure investment. Mm-hmm. Now, the internet is different, though. What the internet did was that the cannon fodder at the bottom of the Napoleonic power structure started talking directly to each other. That's exactly what the internet was so underrated by the old powers. Mm-hmm. So politics ignored the internet. Mass media ignored the internet. Academia ignored the internet. Industry ignored the internet. They all ignored it. That's exactly why the whole internet world is full of tech startups and new initiatives like crypto and things like that. Because the old guys who were in charge completely underrated that the internet would completely transform the world and even take over everything. Mm-hmm. Everything will be digitalized eventually. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who got that, we just rode that way. Mm-hmm. Became wealthy and successful and things like that because we just knew, oh, right, we are now the kids in the streets of Paris in 1789 and the old powers are stuck in Versailles. Mm-hmm. You know, in Versailles, nobody could read and write. But in the streets of Paris, people could read and write. So the people in the streets of Paris had invented tabloids that told them that these poofs in in Versailles don't care about us and cost us tons of money. And they'd invented encyclopedias where they could go to the letter G and find a guillotine and a drawing of it. (laughs) And basically said that, why don't we take out the guillotines and go to Versailles and kill these bastards and get rid of them and save the money and basically move the capital to Paris, where it should be, right? And the same thing could then happen all over again with the internet. And that's exactly what's going on. It's been going on for the past few years. We're in the middle of the revolution right now. People will realize that everything will be digitalized. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to academia, even Harvard and Oxford are over. EdTech mm-hmm. will kill them. EdTech mm-hmm. will be cheaper, better, uh, more certified, more trustworthy, mm-hmm. smoother. You know, it will just kill them. It's just better with just about everything. Right. Uh, same thing with mass media is dead and over. And of course, mass media is complaining and saying that social media is just fake news. You know, you can't you guys, which is exactly what people in Versailles said about the streets of Paris. And mm. History is repeating itself. And we all know that everything that ever was written in newspapers was always fake. So mm. we might as well take different sources of fake news, compare them. And we have better news than we ever had before. Mm. That's social media for you. And the same thing goes for industry. Industry is completely dependent on advertising and, and the commercial culture. And it thinks it can advertise itself out of it, the problem and things like that. And we just, all of us know that advertising is spam, And we mm-hmm. hate it. And I'll increasingly pay to get rid of it, not to ever see it again, which means we're not accessible any longer for industry. Mm-hmm. Meaning that to have access to us now, you must go through the algorithms. Algorithms that will soon also be tied to blockchains. Mm. They'd be incredibly truthful and honest about absolutely everything, meaning that if I want to go into a restaurant tonight, wherever I'm located, I'm going to find through the algorithm, which is the fucking best restaurant in town, and I mm. can go there and have my meal. And nobody can bullshit me for advertising about different restaurants. 
I don't need the ads any longer. I don't, they just out of the way. That means the entire world of communication is right now changing rapidly. And all the guys are investing in being much more truthful about what they do, much more honest about what they do. It's more about best product at best price than ever before, mm. to be honest with you. Mm. Those are the winners in the internet world. So the internet is killing everything. It's killing mm. the Napoleonic power structure because Napoleon's dead. We don't need him any longer when we now communicate directly one another in a horizontal way. And therefore now we create all these internet of things and we create internet connections around the world. We create this huge global brain, intercommunication, and only those who honestly go into these networks and tell people about their own lives and they're honest about everything they do are the ones that are going to be the winners. Mm. You said something interesting there that it's the best product for the best price. So the internet age has enhanced our ability to for price discovery frankly right we can the we've increased the interconnectedness of the marketplace so that people can engage in freer exchange to discover more accurate prices is this why government is failing <laughs> because they provide terrible service at a really high price that people are just starting to see through the bullshit Politics is dead. <laughs> it, it just doesn't know that it's dead yet. It's costly. It's inefficient. It doesn't do anything. I mean, the first thing AI will do once AI appears, uh, it, it's taking over politics. It'll do it better than politicians, right? We're we're almost at the point right now where you don't want a human to fly your plane when you're going to fly. You mm. want a robot to do, it, to do it better. We're at the point right now we don't want a surgeon to ever touch the body. You want a robot do the surgical activity because they do it better, right? We, we know that in so many cases already technology is better than anything humans can do. So uh, if that, I mean, you, you lawyer, if you go to court, do you really want a human to represent you when you can have an AI that knows all the law books of the world? No, you don't. You want the AI, right? So the, the that's already occurring right now. So politics is doomed. It's very theatrical. I think the whole Trump versus Biden thing in America, especially seeing it from the outside, is just yeah, but this is just theater now. It doesn't matter. I mean, the effects this can have are small. If anything, it can still destroy things and cause damage. Mm -hmm. Xi Jinping and Putin can certainly cause a lot of damage. But, but you know, they can't really create new value. Mm -hmm. They can. Central banks are done as far as I'm concerned because mm -hmm. now we not only have gold and a few Swiss francs now and then, we have the cryptocurrencies around and we all know that because they cannot be inflated, they can be trusted in a way we can't trust the dollar or the euro. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. So the internet is about brutal honesty. And mm. when you tie the blockchain to the algorithm, you've got the ultimate way. I think even Google are doing it. I think something better will come along. When you tie the algorithm one side of the coin to the blockchain on the other side of the coin, it's got to be such a terrific technology or truthfulness on a part we've never seen before. And this is why it's interesting to compare with capitalism. The brilliance of capitalism, when it started in Venice in the 14th century, and brought the Silk Route to Europe was that we always had braggers in every street corner of the world who tried to sell this shit. Mm -hmm. And they always lied. They were all snake oil salesmen. Because you couldn't, you couldn't go, you couldn't find out what the facts were. Mm -hmm. You just had to instinctively trust them. And of course, they fooled you all the time. But suddenly capitalism came along. If somebody stood in your street corner and bragged about a certain product, you could just go up and say, Yeah, but what's the price? And suddenly had to be brutally honest about how much he valued the product. Mm. Because the price he said was the price at which he was willing to give it away. Mm. So it wasn't worth more than that. Right. 
Price is truth. Down. Price is truth, exactly. Right. So capitalism went through every system. It's a fantastic, like a phallic force, like fuck the world, you know, is it? Capitalism mm. went through everything and it, people tried to stop, whoever tried to stop it just became miserable. Mm. Because finally capitalism created such enormous amounts of wealth that could also be distributed to the masses in many mm. places uh, because it created truthfulness in human relations. Mm. The internet's doing this all over again, but on a much more ingrained, you know, smaller scale, like microscopically now we have truthfulness in human relations. And mm. it's just... Digital, the last 30 years, has basically taught us the lesson. Just stop bullshitting. You'll be exposed anyway. The blockchains mm-hmm. will change you to history. They will chalk, they, they will tie every claim you ever made to history as well. There's mm. no point in bullshitting anybody longer because they'll all find out. Right. Wow. That's where, that's what did, did, did is like a huge thing that slowly rolls its way over the planet and over yeah. humanity. And it forces us all to be truthful and stay with our histories. And not lie about the fact that it's kind of interesting that the last kind of storytelling that the old institutions go to now, they're just getting more and more desperate. They're now trying to kidnap things that were priceless to us in the past, like political ideology, religious engagement, spirituality. It's called woke. Right? Mm-hmm. They, they try to claim that I, we run a commercial enterprise here and, and suddenly improving on the world is a really important thing to us. So. So, so you know, we have to we have we have to fight against climate change. Although we're making toilet paper, it's just like it, it's getting so ridiculous. And it's precisely the, the going into the pitch, the hysterical pitch, and the woke culture is coming along, which has nothing to do with what they're doing. I think once we got the next recession, every damn diversity officer will come to fire. They don't make money for anybody. They just they just try to force politics and spirituality onto places where it shouldn't be in the first place. Hmm. That's really interesting that you describe capitalism as like washing truth over the world in a way, cutting out a lot of bullshit. This is why Coinbase and these companies threw politics out the window. Mm. Why? Because they work with truth every day. Right. Crypto, right? So why would they then have people who lie at the office? And when they discovered that the woke people were just running around with, it, with their own agendas and nothing to do with the product or the service, the company was supposed to. They turned around to philosophers like me and said, what are we going to do? And I basically said, just tell people you pay your employees well so they, in their spare time, can engage themselves politically and spiritually, which is what they should do. You go to church on a Sunday. Yeah. That has nothing to do with going to the office Monday to Friday mm. and shouldn't have anything to do with it. I think any company today takes on a campaign like Coinbase did and depoliticizes the workplace. That's where people who want to work. Brian Armstrong's genius was knowing that all the best technologies in the world wanted to work for Coinbase if he made that move. And mm-hmm. Silicon Valley were too slow to react it and got behind. And they're no longer at the top of mm-hmm. Truthfulness, stay true. That's the thing. The problem, and again, the core of this problem is central banking, though, is there was a headline on CNN today saying, should the U.S. government control food and gas prices? So this force of truth in the world called the price is now like in mainstream media discourse, we're actively discussing whether or not we should suppress and or manipulate this mechanism of truth. So how did we get, how did we deviate so far? Then you get Venezuela. Then you get Venezuela. 
that's yes. That's, that's, that's how did we get here, though? My question is, how did we discover this powerful mechanism implemented in capitalism, and then fast forward a few hundred years, and now we're have we just forgotten the importance of it? What I mean, it blows my mind that we're having these conversations in mainstream media. Uh, my leaning would be that it's the corruption of the money. I would just like to know how you see the path from price is truth to price is something the government should control. Okay, so the internet is killing all the old institutions. Mm. Let's agree on that, right? Agreed. That means the old institutions will fight back. Their attempt at the counter-revolution is to declare everything online as crappy and fake news or whatever, or terrible mm. for the kids and things like that. Um, and then they go after the internet itself, and they're attacking directly the internet's innermost core, which is the algorithm. So you go to Google, for example. Ten years ago, Google had a great algorithm. You did Google search. You had a little warning sign at the right with the ads, and you didn't press them. When Google got to the point, people had discovered that. So 99% of people pressed the algorithm. Mm. People ignored the ad. Google were getting desperate because their model was a capitalist old model, which was to make money out of advertising. Mm. So they tried to force the ads into the algorithm field. So now you see the ads at the top. I think that's the death of Google. I think that was mm. a terrible mistake Google made. And I think that's why we're tired and sick of the Google search engine because it's terrible. We need something better. Okay. And, and the better search engines will remove the ad entirely because it doesn't have anything to do with the sort of attention it's trying to do. Capitalism is now a given. So we can, on top of capitalism, create a system we call attention. What does that mean? It means that the old institutions will try to infiltrate the algorithm. That's exactly what they're doing. And there are three means are trying to infiltrate the algorithm. The algorithm should be pure and clean. Mm. It should reflect you. It should reflect your past. It should reflect your personal desires. It should reflect your network of people and the pace that they have. I'm a 61-year-old perverted old man living in the stock of Sweden. But I love other 61-year-old perverted old men who live in big cities because they're still protesting. I want to know what kind of restaurants they go to if they live in London. Because they're in London. I go to their restaurants. Because those are the restaurants I would love. That's why I want the data to be there. And that's the kind of algorithm I want. And maybe I want that algorithm to sometimes randomly have a surprise element. The only thing I want. And I want the algorithm to have a global and a local department. So some things we want locally, we want them now, desperately, right away. And it doesn't have to be the best thing in the world. And sometimes we just want the best thing in the world. We have patience enough to find the best, thing in the world. best product, best price globally. And that's, a global that's what we want from the algorithm. Very easy to find a pure and clean algorithm. That was done 15 years After that, the old powers saw that people went online and searched everything. People like to make informed decisions if they can. And suddenly with their smartphones and laptops in their hand, people wouldn't decide on anything unless they went online and checked it first. You don't go on a date unless you know who you're going on the date with. Even know if you share friends, if you share interests. What, what they look like, how old they are, their previous past, all of those things. Why would you not know that before you go on a date? Because otherwise the date is just a guessing game. And why would you go on a date that is a pure guessing game when you can actually have an informed decision? So people like to make informed decisions. That's what they do. That's what they used algorithms for. So the algorithms became what everybody got attracted to. The holding guys, mm. advertising industry, the politicians, academia, they all got into the algorithm game. And they wanted to change the algorithm, so they declared the algorithm because it wasn't in their interest. It wasn't your interest and my interest. Mm. And they hate that. They hate us to make informed decisions about what we want. 
Mm. They want to control you. They want to control me. So what they do is that they go after the algorithm by moralizing against the algorithm. And then you have three elements. You have the corruption of money because algorithms don't cost anything mm-hmm. per se. The algorithm reflects you. You give your data back to the algorithm. It then gives you a better informed worldview. Mm-hmm. And that trade is an attentional trade. It's not a trade of money. So they threw all the old money, at least, at it, called corruption of money, advertising, and they threw the ads into the algorithm. It's called search optimization. Mm-hmm. When I work with corporations here in Europe, I always declare the search optimization is the ultimate evil. It's the what? I'm sorry? Ultimate evil. Because oh. search optimization is organized cheating and lying. Okay, you try to sneak your way up the algorithm, but the algorithm is for the user. It's a sacred thing for the user because the user wants a correct, perfect worldview. And because you're lying your way up, you're lying to that person. Mm. If you search optimized, you lie to the person using the algorithm. Hmm. It's horrible. It's evil. That's that's the evil in, in, in the digital realm because you're from the old paradigm, desperate to get up there. And all the companies I work with, do search optimization, always make the excuse that, well, how do we get to the top of the algorithm if we don't search optimize? And I just look say, how about making a better product at a lower price? <laughs> I work right. with the car industry in Europe. You know, they, they, the diesel engine scandal was at the middle of it. Instead of building cars, they, they, they lied about their cars. They lied about the diesel engine. They lied about the emissions and spent the money on search. They did both the two evils at the same time. So this is what old companies do. Politicians do it too. The politicians then they want to manipulate the algorithm. Mm. So you, you write marriage, you write wedding. You, you don't want a white couple of man and woman. So it's gotta be two black gay guys there, even if you're not black or gay, it doesn't matter. You must see the two black gay guys there. And Google does that already. And that is what we call the manipulation of politics. That's mm. not an honest algorithm any longer. That's not the algorithm you want as a user mm. when you use the Google search. That's the algorithm Google have designed to change you. And that's evil. Mm. That's evil. I don't think anybody should ever try to change another human being. Not without them knowing it. I right. hate nudging in these things. They're terrible, right? If I don't know that somebody's trying to change me, that is brutal dishonesty and that's evil. And that should right. be exposed. And the future will be hated. So, and then we also got the third one that people forget about. It's what we call conformation. And confirmation means that everybody should be the same. Everybody, nobody should be allowed to be different from anybody else. So the irony with all the diversity talk these days is that all the diversity is just about the way we look. But it's not a diversity of opinion. People are terrified of diversity of opinion. Everybody must think the same way. You must not think differently about the vaccine or whatever. You must all think the same way. And therefore, you must all be forced to use the vaccine the same way. And if anybody deviates from that, we go hysterical. And the pressure towards confirmation comes from the old systems, the old symbolic systems, from academia and from mass media. So the guys who used to be in charge of telling us the story about ourselves, the guys we pointed tell us the stories, which were used to be priests in churches, and they became professors in academia, who told us the stories about us. We don't listen to those guys any longer. They're furious with us. So what they then do is that they go after us and say, okay, but you need to conform. So confirmation of academia, Manipulation of politics and corruption of money are the three enemies of the free and open algorithm. Hmm. And I'm just making people aware of this all the time so they realize what the fuck are people doing? You know, when a Republican Christian housewife in Texas discovers that Google are trying to manipulate her kids not to become Christian, 
She will hate Google for it. These are the coming civil wars of America. These are the coming huge conflicts we're going to see occur in the next few years. Who controls whom here? Right. Wow. And I, I, at the end of the day, I think you and I agree. There's only one final point. There can only be one end point to that struggle. Is that let each person decide for themselves who they want. I think anything else is dishonest. I agree wholeheartedly. And I just, it, what's interesting about that is that it just seems to be recognition and honoring of an ineradicable reality. It's like, no matter what you do, each person has the power to choose always. So if we just build systems that recognize and honor that reality, it's no surprise that it creates human flourishing and economic abundance and prosperity and harmonious human action. It's mind blowing, honestly, because then even the people that try to control others, they're kind of sawing off the branch on which they rest. You know, like you're, if you're the, what's, you could look at this through the lens of the state, perhaps it, um, the more they increase tax rates, there's this thing called the Laffer curve that it actually decreases tax revenue. So like the more you steal from the economy, the less the economy produces and the less revenue you create. So by trying to increase your revenue, you're actually decreasing it. And this seems yeah. to be a similar dynamic. Like the more if you, you try to control dynamical people, system, that's exactly what you get. If you kill dynamical system, everybody loses. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So honor the reality of the dynamical system and let it run. Right. It just. It's okay. like the woke message about slavery, for example, that they make a big thing out of slavery. I'm, I'm like, yeah, slavery was horrible, but so is work. <laughs> mm. Work is essentially you get paid eight hours a day, at least slaves got paid 24 hours a day. You know, it, like Karl Marx said, that's just a shift that we made a big deal out of. But anyway, it's funny that these guys who are so obsessed with slavery being so damn evil, want to enslave us and our minds and control right. our minds and our thinking, which is the ultimate form of slavery, is to try to manipulate other people to think in a certain way without them being aware of it. That's the ultimate form of slavery, I would say. Yeah, that's a good segue to the next topic here because I want to talk about power. And, you know, slavery, you know, I wrote a piece on this called Masters and Slaves of Money. Again, the corruption of money has led to the institution of slavery more than once historically. And I actually view central banking today as just kind of like the modern invisible form of slavery because now it's just time theft right if i can steal someone's time or i can tax them then i'm effectively enslaving them and what are we doing with fiat currency inflation other than taxing people without their without their um without legislation and without their consent ultimately so you're just stealing time from people so it's like a it's a watered down less visible form of slavery um, it is absolutely. There's no point in taxation at all. I don't think anybody could invent it today and it would be credible. I mean, we have such a sophisticated world today when it comes to technology. We, we live in a world that's called a sensocratic world. Mm. That means that there are sensors everywhere and we have senses and our senses and the sensors are interacting one another all the time. We do have cameras and microphones just about everywhere on the planet. We don't need passports to belong look with the camera into your eye and they know who you are, right? And things like that. So the sensocratic uh, movement is already happening historically. We're moving towards sensocracy, which is also why politics become completely redundant. Right? But at the end of the day, if I use something that is a collective uh, source, a resource of some kind, then I could pay for it when I use it. I just pay for something. 
music. Um, and, and of course, if you could also have competitions, I could choose between different alternatives, then I'll certainly pick the one that I think is the best, which is only fair. So at the end of the day, I agree with you completely. There's something really evil today about forcing me to use a certain fiat currency because a guy has a monopoly on, on violence in that society. Mm. And he will execute that violence onto you, onto your body, mm. if you don't use his fight with fiat currency. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, if somebody came from the future and saw us accept that today, they thought, just, why do you accept this? For God, this is like worse than slavery. And mm -hmm. why would you accept somebody to, to be forced to use their currency when you do certain trades and things? Because then they can use that to create a value for themselves that won't benefit you. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what they do with the fiat currencies. They, 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 they benefit the elites of an old system that wants to stay in its place. And it doesn't distribute the value to the people who should have it, which is right. you and me and the users, right? Yes. Yeah, so, and maybe this is the right question to ask. And it, was, it, it is ultimately, it's what fiat means, right? Do this because I said so under the threat of force. So I am expressing political power to extract your physical power, really to extract the product of your work, the product of your labor, the fruits of your labor. So maybe we could talk about that. Like I, I've drawn this duality between political and physical power. I know you mentioned there's, I think you said symbolic, real and imaginary. So maybe you can talk about that. But my general thinking right now is that the aim of our socioeconomic order needs to be to minimize political power, right? That needs to be as, as, Uneffective as possible, ideally. But we, yeah, we don't need it any longer. It might have use in the past, but it doesn't have any use. Anymore. Yes, but the the purpose of an economy is to actually maximize physical power, right? We want to harness more energy, produce more goods and services, make things cheaper, more abundant. So there's somehow some kind of like, I guess, technological middle road we're trying to navigate to create these systems of of technologies and psychotechnologies that minimize political power but maximize physical power. And with that mouthful, I'd love to hear how you, the tree out of power you, you mentioned earlier. Yeah, so systems are stable over time if they're triads. That's exactly what, for, why, for example, the American Constitution is probably going to save the United States of America once more, as it has in the past, because it's a triad. Triads are stable over time. That's why tyrants don't stay for long. They're not stable. So uh, a triad that's always repeating itself with every paradigm in history is the one between the different human talents. So human talents, think of yourself as you're serving your community, you're serving your tribe. Uh, if you're a leader in that case, you're either one of three different types of power. You represent either an imaginary power, which is what we usually think about when we hear the word power. Uh, it's very loose. And the imaginary power is related to unite the other two. And the other two is the symbolic power and the real power. And what we mean real power is not that it's strong in the other two, it's just that it's based on the real assets. Mm. That's probably close to what you call about mm. when you talk about physical power. So, yeah. for example, uh, who controls, who's got the monopoly on violence in a given society? That's certainly real power, right? Capital is real power. Money is real power. Land, ownership, land is real, right? It's real mm. power. Money is very, very real because you can basically use money to, to get just about everything else, you know? Mm. So real power is, is tied to these resources. Imaginary power, usually royalty or later politicians in history, maybe we ascribe a certain power. The, the third one that was the interesting one is the symbolic power. That's the control of the narrative, mm. control of the storytelling. That's usually religion, 
churches and mosques and synagogues and things. And later in history, it's academia. You know, anybody who works a lot with text and makes up stories all the time, mm. like Netflix and Hollywood, they are symbolic power. Mm. So there's a symbolic power, there's an imaginary power, there's a real power. And they tend to be stable over time once a paradigm is set in. Mm. But when a paradigm shifts, they're all thrown apart. That meaning the, the old powers of the old paradigm, the old symbolic imaginary real power will fight to keep their positions. That's mm. exactly what they attack algorithms today. So, so the symbolic power attacks the algorithm, the imaginary power attacks the algorithm, the real power attacks the algorithm. We call it corruption, manipulation, and confirmation. So, mm. and of course, we have to fight them back. We have to say that we, we've got to leave you on our side, pull out the guillotines, get rid of you. But you refuse to die when you should die because we don't need you any longer. You're just standing in the way for something much more powerful. Mm -hmm. And what we're opening up to is a new triad, a sort of digital age triad. And I think the digital age triad will be very much dependent on data and how we process the data. So whoever collects and processes the data will be the real power these days, rather than the capital itself. And that's what mm -hmm. crypto is interested in. Crypto is both data and money at the same time. It's a mm -hmm. perfect... It's a perfect uh, it's a perfect communication tool for a paradigm shift. It has mm -hmm. both aspects of being previous paradigm and the new paradigm. Because after all, money's becoming data now. Mm -hmm. So it's data with certain value attached to it, and that's mm -hmm. money, instead of a paper note. Um, so the data is there. Then there's a soft result is that if you've got sensors around the world, in, if the satellites are looking at us every day, we can wake up in the morning today and basically get a worldview on Google Earth every morning of our lives. It's a bit like having a God's eye looking at the world and looking yeah. at everything that happens down into the most minute details. Basically, right? That is the sensocracy. The sensocracy is now the cameras and the microphones and the street corner. Mm. The Chinese have a very, very clear idea what they want to do with their sensocracy. They want to run it as a dictatorship police. And we philosophically now work, for example, Chris and I work want Korea, Japan, and India, because the neighboring countries around China certainly want an alternative to that. Mm -hmm. They want a functioning triadic structure. They don't want the alternative. don't want the dictator. They, they're thinking, can we rethink democracy for a digital age in a way that actually works? Can we have cameras and microphones absolutely everywhere while still having a democracy? And the answer to that is that, yeah, as long as you have competition. Mm -hmm. So if I give all my data to the government, to the government only, I'm going to have China. Mm -hmm. But if I give my data all the time to at least five different competing forces mm -hmm. that are competing for my attention to get my data, then that is an establishment of a pluralistic society in the digital age. Mm -hmm. So the Koreans and the Taiwanese and the Japanese are working towards these solutions. So the Indians, they're working towards solutions where you distribute the data, several different uh, receivers every time you produce the data. And therefore, you have competition between them because it's always competition that opens up society that can be democratic. You know, a lot of guys these days move to places like Dubai and Singapore. And then you ask them and say, why did you move to Dubai? It's a dictatorship run by Sheikh. And then they say, yeah, but I can leave in 10 hours. Mm. And that's exactly what democracy is. You just leave. You just vote the guy out or you move to another city. Mm -hmm. And that's what America does again. Americans are moving around in their country. They're moving away from high tax, you know, states that have terrible social services and homeless people everywhere, and woke people in government. And you, you know, Portland fell from what the third most livable city in America to the 67th most livable city in America. Why? Nobody wants to live there any longer. And if you live in Oregon, you move to Bend, right? 
You leave, people are leaving San Francisco in droves because it's so damn mismanaged in certain terms of living. And those two things at the same time, why would anybody stay? People are moving to the Rocky Mountains and Canada these days. Right. And they're certainly moving to Texas and Florida. And that's the great thing with America. They move with their feet. That's the real American democracy. Yeah. So as long as you can leave a place and go somewhere else, you're free to go. Then you have a vote. Hmm. That's what a vote is. So I think what's important now for the sensocracy is that it could easily become a police state, especially after the pandemic. Politicians today certainly want to create a dictatorship because they just want to keep the power to themselves. Right? And we got to stand up against them. And the way to stand up against them is to say, pay no, say no to paying taxes. Because their entire system is depending on a carpet called taxation. And if right. you pull that carpet from underneath, they're done. Right. No, so, I... so that's going to be important. And then the third leg, once you've got the informationalism, which is the data, and the sensocracy, you've got the third leg, which is the where, where does the creativity go? And we call the, the creative class in the digital age, we call them protopians. Kevin Kelly is a brilliant term because utopia and dystopia are dead as ideas. But protopianism, which is the incremental improvement of every process you work with, mm. constantly improving on things like you do in technology, for example, mm. that is genuine creativity today. And then basically you set it up. That's that's going to be the digital age and the digital society. Mm. And that's going to be the new forces that are fighting the old. You know, they're, they're all three. Yeah, no, that's a lot of great points there. I would add that I've often considered just holding Bitcoin, actually, or really, I guess you could say any alternative money that's not fiat. If you create demand, even just for physical gold, and you bury it in your backyard, you've taken demand, you've decremented demand for fiat currency, which is used to fund this whole thing, right? Like they, if there's not demand to hold fiat currency, then the whole thing collapses. So I've, I've often considered Bitcoin or even physical gold is kind of a vote against the bullshit. Um, let me and, ask and you. The, thought, the, the, the strength of crypto is clear because crypto has developed and spread like wildfire in a society that just right now happens to be non-inflationary. Mm -hmm. Okay, once inflation kicks in, bad currencies are doomed. Yeah. That's what we all know. So that's why there's a golden age for crypto ahead of us, certainly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Let me ask you about power again because I like this triad triad model symbolic tell me if i got this right symbolic power is he who controls the narrative typically religion uh today it's you know government's well into that game now real power would be something more like capital weapons like to the actual ability to project physical force today data data okay yeah what Data is zeros and ones. It's very real. How does I'm, I guess I'm not clear on imaginary power. What? How would? How do we define that in that? Context? It's very vague. It's what we ascribe power to. Mm. So a king is just a regular Joe, right? And then we put a crown on his head and give him a title, and suddenly we behave as if he's not like the rest of us, like special uh, superior okay. to the rest of us. So imaginary power is something we need to do and apply to somebody, and because they have the imaginary power. The other two powers are in place. So, and what happens with the triad, of course, if one of these guys takes off and goes a bit big-headed and want to kill the other two, the other two are united against the third one. So what happens is that the Supreme Court and the Congress unite against the president. The president goes out of you know out of his loop, and the president, Congress, be united against the Supreme Court, etc. So, so once you have a triad in place, it's very stable over time. Mm -hmm. 
And that's what we see tribes repeatedly appear in paradigms. And in functioning empires and nation states last a long time, but therefore built on constitutions to have a triadic structure. And dialectics is triadic. Dialectics is not the opposition of the two. It's, it looks like an opposition of the two, but it's actually the third. You know, first there's a void, a negation, something collapses in the system. Uh-huh. That means you discover that the system didn't hold. So the system is abstract. And because system is abstract, you have to work your way towards a concretion of the system. So you can you, you have a worldview again that actually makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that the abstraction means you you, 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 you don't stay with the abstraction when something comes abstract. Something used to look concrete to you, it became abstract. You don't stay. You go to the negation, you go to where the problem is. The problem is probably you find the answer to what happened. Mm-hmm. But that's even the case of phenomenology, for example. If you get tons and tons of data thrown at you, your, your brain will instantly kill 99.99% of all the data mm-hmm. because anything that it, you don't need to be constantly reminded the sky is blue, mm-hmm. right? So once you observe this sky, it's blue, that's usually blue, okay. Then any data that comes to your eyes that says the sky is blue, you kill it right away, right? Mm-hmm. You kill most of the data, but what you do is that you reserve the right to find an ambivalent uh, abstraction of some kind. So mm. if something suddenly becomes a bit of like, that's weird. Something was weird there. You sort of notice it. Mm-hmm. You don't pay too much attention to it because it takes energy to pay attention to things. Mm-hmm. You pay some attention to it. If something else happens that's kind of out of the ordinary, and if the second thing that happened runs with the first one, that's a sign you should really start paying attention to what's going on. And then your brain starts investing a lot of energy into there's something wrong here. And the two wrongs I just discovered point towards the same thing. Um, I'm not sure about that at all. Of course, I still trust my worldview because I've worked on it for a long time and it's worked mm-hmm. for me in the past. So I stay with it. You dip it in the back of your mouth and there's a doubt. Now, if a third abbreviation, if a third abstraction occurs, a third ambivalence occurs, then you see the three ambivalences are connected mm-hmm. one another. You kill your entire worldview in no time at all. And you build an entire new world you're guessing in between the three new ambivalent points you've got because you know that world is going to be better than anything out of the past because these three ambivalent points you just discovered show there's something fundamentally wrong with the world you it must be killed and destroyed hmm. and we can study this in laboratories of phenomenology is kind of a science these days and and actually this is how we do with everything actually and this is actually how ai works too it is a really really efficient way of handling information hmm. once you got three points that rhyme with one another and that all are opposed to the system you believed in, they probably not they probably there for you to discover that there's a totally different world you're waiting around the corner that's much more truthful than why you're in the past. Interesting. Hey everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, 
Consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. I'm very curious about the digital age, and I think there has been painfully little written about it, actually. I mean, we write a lot about kind of the immediate consequences of digital, but I don't think there's been like a thorough... I try to look at it through an economic lens, typically, like how much does digital technology economize human action or let us accomplish greater results with less effort? Um, It seems to me like this is the most impactful transition in age since we transitioned from agricultural to industrial society. feels like another one of those. Um, And you've said in one of your interviews that I listened to that We've shifted the importance from the space to the time axis. Could you unpack that for me? And then really, again, I'm just trying to speak to the larger impact of digital. Like, How do you see this actually changing the sphere of socioeconomics going forward? I don't think we really understand today what a revolution it was when the first telegraph came along in the 19th century. Marshall McLuhan has written a lot about this, and he's a very clever yeah. guy, right? So um, suddenly you could sit in London, something happened in London, and seconds later, people in New York could know about it. Hmm. We take that for granted today because we live in a world where everything is happening in real time. But when the telegraph came along, it was the first time some information could travel at the speed of light, right? So the, the, um, then radio, television came along, and, and suddenly, you know, Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, and we saw it in real time. Hmm. Um, now we live in the world with all human communication, like anybody talks to anybody these days, now so effortlessly happening across the globe, no cost at all. I mean, I like to study the most extreme version of this, which is like a kid playing a computer game in New Zealand and another kid playing a computer game in Iceland, because they're antipodes on the opposite sides mm. of the planet, and the information has to go from Iceland to satellite somewhere, then onto another satellite, and then down in New Zealand, and see if these kids could experience the tiny little microsecond of time difference that actually happens, because you're now at the speed of light itself. Mm. Light travels to seven and a half you know, loops around the planet with a second, right? So, so, so maybe, maybe then we could see something. But other than that, because we're all now communicating at the speed of light, and we're throwing data around at the speed of light across the planet everywhere, that means that space has disappeared. Mm. And, you know, there used to be days when you talked on the phone, like, oh, I'm walking around here on the streets of Sydney, Australia, and you're in Seattle right now. Isn't it fascinating? We could talk to each other real time. You know, nobody says that any longer. <laughs> the only geography that still exists is, is the distance between your ear and the phone itself. Mm. Right? So, so space has disappeared. And it's become obvious after the pandemic that doesn't really matter where in the world you work and digital nomads are around like mad. We predicted this 30 years ago that it, it just took something like the pandemic to make it obvious. Mm-hmm. And suddenly now millions of people have realized they can be anywhere they like on the planet and communicate with anybody they want in real time at no cost. Mm-hmm. Since space has more or less disappeared, it's become relevant. We, we can even we can travel with our own bodies if you want to, you know, if I want to physically meet you, I can be where you are within the next 24 hours and I can just buy a very cheap flight ticket these days. So it's, a, it's affordable to also transport bodies in case you want to do that. But, you know, what we do these days, we go online and, 
And of course, the online world is still a screen on a laptop or a smartphone. It's probably going to be a hologram quite soon. And once you come to that kind of environment, the physical meeting itself is not that important either. Mm-hmm. You know, so things are, we all know with the metaverse and the new technologies being developed, they're all about eliminating space entirely so that space is a neutral thing. Mm-hmm. We're spatial creatures, but we can create the space to communicate or interact with anybody we like wherever you want. Mm-hmm. Now, that means that means Google Maps is there already, but Google Calendar is going to get more important. But what we then do is that we value our time immensely. Mm-hmm. And, and we are mortal beings, and we throw ourselves forward to our death date and back to where we live right now. We value everything we do accordingly. So what are my priorities? What am I supposed to do at this time in my life? What am I supposed to do when I'm 40, 50, 60? You know? um, what priorities do I have? What new choices do I make? What, what what do I decide not to do, and things like that? Mm. So all these decisions we make that give us an existential value to ourselves are about the timeline. That has always been the case, but now more than ever, because the only thing we haven't been able to affect at all is time. Mm. The arrow time is such a tough bit to deal with because. <laughs> We you know we can dream about time machines for all we care, but there is no evidence whatsoever that anything like that could ever happen. Mm-hmm. There's something really mysterious about time in this sense. It, it, it's not reversible, not like physics. It, it, it's not like anything. It's not like space itself. It just moves in one direction constantly, and and it never returns to anywhere it's been before. Mm-hmm. And I think the, both both the Mister Time philosophers are obsessed with time these days. Time and process, these are the things philosophers deal with constantly, right? Um, because it, it, and physicists are obsessed with it too. I mean, Lee Smallin has written that we don't even know what time is yet. Mm-hmm. You might think we do, but any explanation of what time is basically an explanation of what time is produced, for example. Well, time is something clocks measure. No, clocks measure time. It doesn't say what time is. Mm-hmm. Entirely, time has nothing to do with the clock. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's weird, but we are becoming more and more temporal creatures and temporalities become more important and valuable to us and i mean you know when you're really brutally honest with somebody these days you just look at me and i say don't waste my time uh, get yeah. out of my life yeah I, I know one thing i don't want to spend my time with you because my time is incredibly valuable and you cannot buy time you know and not buy yourself time because you have the time you have and at the end of the day, you can be the wealthiest guy in the world. You're in a cancer clinic and you're dying, you know, yeah. and, and, and no money can save you from that. So looking back at that, philosophically speaking, we're talking about capitalism. Capitalism is being replaced by potentialism. What we mean by that is that capitalism is now so efficient. It's there. And whenever we try to prevent it from doing its thing, we only lose from that. You know, you, you try to stop capitalism doing its thing, you get Venezuela. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have Venezuela. So, but just like agriculture in that way, it became just a natural thing that just occurred. If you had money flowing around and there were certainly people out there who were willing to sell you food. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were people who were willing to sell you land if you wanted to grow your own food in your own farm. And if you had money, you could do all those things. So money replaced land simply because money was something you could use to get absolutely everything, of which land was one thing you could purchase and you could Uh sell. But but that's when money beat everything else during capitalism. But we're now in an historical situation where the struggle is really about our own ears and our own eyes and our Uh own inner beings, our own souls in a way. 
And capitalism can't really get to that. It's kind of stops outside of that. Capitalism is the king of the profane. And capitalism is the king of the public. When it comes to what you pressure, what, what you what you treasure the most in life these days, what we call the sacred and the private, the sacred and the private is something that capital can't really have access to. You can't get money inside of that limit. And that's interesting. That's where attention writes. And that's exactly when you build an algorithm. You must not have a money function thrown into the equation. You must have somebody pay the way through because then they're a liar. The, the, the algorithm will only measure who goes where online. How long do they stay there? Do they return? Do they use the different functions? Do they recommend this to others? Maybe they even give you a grade if they have enough time to do that. You know, uh, But what people do with the things they, they deal with online decides where the algorithm goes. And it doesn't measure quantity, but it measures the quality of it. Because mm-hmm. the one thing you can do is like, okay, something is popular here. 100,000 people know about it, so 90,000 people went there. There was something else around the corner that only 100 people knew about, but all the 100 people went there. Mm-hmm. And the qualitative experience they had was much better. Then the thing that the 100 people know about beats the one that 100,000 know about in the algorithm. That's the whole point. Because mm-hmm. the algorithm is only there to tell us who's best. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's why you everybody can grade a restaurant experience, for example, a food experience. But you then divide it by how many graders you've got. So that means that it's an average, mm-hmm. an average grade that gives you 4.4 or 4.6 in a restaurant Google Maps. And the 4.6 restaurant beats the 4.4 restaurant according to the algorithm. Mm-hmm. Not through money, but through the algorithm. So the algorithms are not measuring money per se, unless you explicitly ask for that. Mm-hmm. The algorithms point you towards the attention of other people. Mm-hmm meaning it predicts it's going to get your attention as well. So the algorithm is essentially, good algorithm tells you, this is what you will give your attention to. You give it this word. This is the number one thing in the world you want to give your attention to that is tied to that specific term. And that is attentionalism. And the way I describe it is that it's a bit like running a nightclub. And society is like a huge nightclub, right? <laughs> and, and people are queuing to this nightclub because it happens to be a really good one, right? And then a guy comes along, usually Russian oligarch, you know, it's a hooker from Morocco, whatever, and he tries to you know, pass through the line and he pays his way through. And you realize that guy's not a cool guy. And you come inside the nightclub and suddenly that guy who wasn't very cool and just threw money around is standing in the VIP lounge. Then, you know, one, this nightclub is whoring already. Anybody can pay their way in, meaning these are not the coolest people in town. These are just the people of the most money. And the VIP lounge is absolutely useless. It, there's no superior class inside this inside this space, this club. There's the VIP lounge because everybody's in the VIP lounge and paid their way in. The whole nightclub falls down to you. It's, it's, just, it's just destroyed. It's magic is gone. It's just a crappy, you know, hole in the wall, nothing else like that. And you leave if you're cool. You just get out of there because you want to be with cool people. You don't want to be with other people. And that's exactly how society is increasingly looking is that we're creating these sort of gated digital communities, these subcultures, increasing having moderators around, increasing having people that know you can't get in here because only the cool people can get in here. And these networks are creating now next generation internet because we don't want to have a lot of people all around us all the time. We don't want to have 100,000 people who want to talk to us all the time. Say you're Peter Thiel, I mean, you, you don't want to have your mailbox full of all these people who want money from you and have mm-hmm. you invest in your companies and see you and try to impress and things like that. No, you want to minimize your social connections. 
Mm-hmm. We're all tired of a huge mailbox. <laughs> and if we're tired of a huge mailbox and want the mailbox to be smaller, that means we've got a higher, tougher moderation. It's going to be harder to contact us. We have fewer friends around, but the friends we have around us, we really trust. So the networks are getting closer and closer, more and more elite. And we're getting something we started working with 25 years ago called the network pyramid. That means the class structure of the digital age is not going to be between, be between individuals. It's going to be between the networks themselves. Hmm. And networks are great because they have know-how, they have the connections, and they have the creative power to change the world. Those are the most attractive networks. They have a symbolic and imaginary real aspect to them. Mm. And those are the networks you want to be part of. And you can't pay your way in any longer. We mm. all know that the guy who paid his way in, he paid his way in, and he's just going to waste the time for everybody else inside, inside the network. That's why time philosophy is fundamental to values today. And we value the networks we belong to. And we struggle to keep up with other guys in the network because we know otherwise we're not part of them anymore. We shouldn't be. Mm. But those networks, that really thrive today are the ones that are incredibly well moderated. They know what they're doing, like a really good nightclub. Like the door mm-hmm. guy is key. Mm-hmm. And if the door guy ever makes a mistake, you've got a tough lady sitting you know, at the cashier when you walk inside. He might also throw you out. But if you pass through those two guys who know what they're doing and they've done it for years, then you're inside the club and you know one of the cool guys. Mm-hmm. And that's what everything is about. We call this a network society. Social relations are all about this these days. And that's why I say you can buy and sell sex, but you can't buy and sell love. Hmm. And that's fine. Sex is capitalism. Love is internationalism. Interesting. Well, no, that's that's really... So, I mean, the theme I'm detecting here is that the technology is so influential on how we organize human hierarchies, right? So when we swap out the technological substrate of you know, I guess legacy media, uh, which was just much more, had much more expensive bandwidth. So then I guess uh, it makes economic sense to organize it in a much more top-down fashion. But in the internet age or the digital age where bandwidth, the cost of bandwidth goes to zero, all of a sudden you get all these self-organizing human hierarchies that are based on what actual, what value or work you're rendering to the hierarchy, right? If you're not rendering good work if you're not earning your place, I guess, earning your keep in the hierarchy, then you just get thrown out. <laughs> it wasn't Facebook's whole point that they would create a social gram of the planet. And mm-hmm. they failed. You know why they failed? They're American and they hate to give people bad news. <laughs> okay? So, well, you should have had a Facebook. You should have had a function that told you the 31st of December every year that we're automatically going to throw 30% of your friends out of your friends category <laughs> because you don't actually interact with them at all. Yeah. Right, and you would clean it up so your social ground is better. Yeah, but Facebook refused to do that, and eventually, we all knew Facebook will only tell me who has gone after somebody else and forced them to add them by just talking them down till they were finally added. Mm-hmm. People became, became so obsessed with the ads that the ads took over Facebook and ruined the social ground. Mm-hmm. And Facebook's social ground is absolute crap. It's mm-hmm. totally useless. And since nobody's there any longer, we know these days, we, we, just, we, we even go to Facebook these days to, to find out who hanged out with whom five years ago. 
Mm-hmm. Because nobody's adding about it the last five years, and nobody's ever going to add people again in the social media because we knew Facebook fooled us into believing this was the future. We're going to get the social graph. We're finally going to get as a social graph over humanity and who knows who. And we never did. Mm. We just we just we just got a diagram over to the people who were too terrified to say no to people who begged to become their friends. Like like to say it's like, am I going to pretend that I'm your friend that I'm on Facebook? Uh, mm-hmm. If I'm your real friend, I probably left Facebook by now, meaning Facebook is useless. So, mm. yeah, sociogram is a fantastic idea because if we know who actually knows whom in the world, which we probably can do through behavioral data eventually, that's valuable. But Facebook did it all the wrong way. And they mm. did it the wrong way because they hated to give you the bad news. Just like a doorman at a nightclub that says everybody's allowed in, <laughs> then you know the nightclub is terrible. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay? He must right. say that only a few guys are allowed in and it's going to be the coolest guys. We can have the coolest nightclub in town and we're allowed to kick you out if you're not cool ones or inside. And mm-hmm. that's when you know it's a really good nightclub. Mm-hmm. That, that's what a good social medium should look like, to be honest with you. Right now, social media are still allowing too many people in. And it's like when too many people are allowed in, it just collapses. Mm-hmm. It collapses right. under its own weight. And finally, you got all the Montenegrin and Cuban fake accounts coming into the, you know, oh boy. <laughs> well, that's a great analogy. Um, that's so, why nobody's on Facebook any longer because Facebook didn't understand what kind of quality they were supposed to be customers. There wasn't yeah. an understanding about that at Facebook. They were terribly naive. They're not digital. You know, they're not. Yeah. Digital is understanding network dynamics. Huh. Digi- a- any brothel madam and any nightclub owner is better at digital than Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Because they know how you run a social network and how you maintain it for years and how yeah. people return to it because it's credible. So Facebook sacrificed quality for quantity and therefore the experience is terrible now. Yeah, they employ too many salespeople and salespeople hate to give people bad news. And by the time you've got mm-hmm. guys who get bad news, who refuse to tell you bad news, you, you know they lie to you because they don't tell you the bad news, mm. which is the most important aspect of being trusted. Mm. So I, we have we we've only begun to see digital. We, we're only learning. We're seeing the kids' diseases and things. Yeah. Let me ask you this, and I, this was a. I think this question was mentioned in one of the interviews I watched of you. What does it even mean to be human, when eight billion humans are mentally interconnected in this global digital web of ideas? Does this change us? Ontologically, I mean, do we end up just sitting behind these computers all the time having conversations like this? I mean, I know the world's kind of hopefully in a a weird spot right now where we have uh, physical world lockdowns and segregation. So we're kind of all pushed even harder into this digital space. But is this what it's going to be like going forward? I mean, are we just going to have more and more relationships with our devices and less so with individuals? No, that's exactly what, there's a really interesting area here called uh, silent knowledge. Silent knowledge is, is a general term for the kind of information that's passed between two people who are in the same room physically together. Mm. And what's missing between you and me, for example, right now. Mm. Uh, so maybe in a more holographic world in the future, we could have more of an exchange between each other. But there's tons of information, including smells and things. Uh, mm-hmm. Between people that are also transferred and there are uh, communication, it's called semiotics, between people in the room. And of course, video conferencing companies like Zoom, they're spending billions of dollars right now on research trying to figure mm-hmm. out can we have more of the silent knowledge actually in the digital experience? Because in that case, 
there'll be less physical meetings and there'll be more digital meetings. Mm-hmm. And I think after we after we're all been here sitting here zooming for a couple of years from the pandemic, I think a lot of people are just dying to go back to physical meetings and they really don't know why, but they're all saying there's just this vague abstract sense that there's something missing that had been missing terribly for the past years. Of course, some miss it less and some miss that more. But for a lot of people, the physical meeting is irreplaceable mm-hmm. and therefore it has value. And that's why we're still going to do the business traveling. A lot of that shit is going to happen. And I basically recommend people when they do the planning these days, you might travel less than you did, but don't miss out on the first meeting where you got to have business relationships with somebody. Go and see them in person. Mm-hmm. Go to a restaurant, go and meet their family, get to know them, and then you can do deals with them for the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. Then the second and the third meeting might not have your physical, and they might you might have your fourth meeting physically a year from now and things like that. So we're gonna we're gonna invent a lot of the next few years and try to figure out for ourselves how often do I go to the office? How often do I work from home? How much do I, you know, how much can I sit in front of a, a screen and, and work? And how much do I actually have to see people face to face? What are the mixes in between these things? And how can this experience that we have right now being developed, how can that develop so it becomes more enriching for people? Hmm. I think we, this is given. There's so many people who get this now. Climate knowledge is a huge thing these days. So the huge investments being made in this to make technologies better and more accommodating, but certainly there's going to be a lot of physical meetings for a long time. Hmm. Still, you know, the sex thing is also there. <laughs> And that's yeah. a huge market, right? Hard, hard to market. do, hard to do that uh, over the digital rails. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, Alexander, this has been an awesome, enlightening conversation. Um, I think we should just do it again because I think there are a million rabbit holes we could go down. I'm, um, I'm perfectly happy to do that. I love your show, so I'm, I'm perfectly happy to do that. Absolutely. Thank you so happy much. I, yeah, you know. We'll do some some messaging offline here, um, but I, I do want to pick your brain more about a few of these topics, like like power and, and economics in the digital age. Um, and maybe you yeah. can just let me. I know you've written a lot about it, so you could hopefully point. And me. we got we got that in with the algorithm, the blockchain. My my thing right now to the crypto guys is that I I, I like being the least crypto guy in the room because the other mm. guys are all crypto experts. And mm. what I love about crypto people is that these are guys who often felt in the past that people fooled them and mm. they hated it. Mm-hmm. And they love the brutal honesty about it. And when mm-hmm. I talk about the brutal honesty about blockchains, they get it. Yeah, that's why I love it. Yeah, that's why you're going to be good at it. Because the things you love the most in your life, those are the things you'll be good at. So, so I encourage them and said that if you're a guy who likes people to speak the honest truth, then you're at home with blockchain. Mm-hmm. That's what blockchains are all about. And I like to put that point in front of them that you have no idea how important algorithms actually are. And everybody you talk about algorithms these days, they think they're all manipulated, and that's like a natural thing. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, why would that be a natural thing? Why would people manipulate you? Why would people corrupt you? Why would people right. conform you into something you don't want to be? So why would the algorithm that shapes you more than anything, why would the algorithm then be controlled by somebody else but you? Yeah, yeah, it's a consequence of centralization. Right. Yeah. And yeah. when you think about it that way, that we want the algorithm to be brutally honest, and we know mm-hmm. the blockchains are about brutal honesty, and the very people who got attached to blockchain, and of course, crypto in a world with, where money is dead important, so they get obsessed with cryptocurrencies. My God, Bitcoin, it's so fucking well designed. You know, it's, it's one of the most impressive innovations ever. I mean, God, it's it's great, right? <laughs> and, and, and that's why it's hard to compete with for all the other cryptocurrencies that come along. They probably got it more specialized rather than Bitcoin running at the center of it. Like somebody invented gold and somebody, ne- nobody never came up with a battle that didn't prove on gold. 
Because right, 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 right. That's the big deal. Yeah. That, that, that is why Bitcoin is so special, right? Yeah. And it stood the test of time. And this test, the early test, the most important one. Yeah. Because once it's established, once Bitcoin is the establishment, then it has the benefit of being the establishment. Well, yes. But I think I think for me, it is holding up the coin of the algorithm on one side and the blockchain on the other side, rather than the cryptocurrency, is what's important for me. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm more a philosopher of blockchain than I'm a philosopher of crypto. Yeah, that's where... Because you've got I've, so many crypto experts on the show anyway, and you're one of them yourself. So he, he, for future conversations, when when you, st- when you start to go outside of the crypto and see what the other applications of blockchain can do, and especially when we start talking about the algorithm, people become aware of the fact that algorithms can actually be free and open. Yeah. Hey, you know? That's that's where I, that's where you can that's where I'm I'm, I'm happy what, to talk about that. That's where I'd like to continue our conversation because I myself want to dig more into this. Like, what does the actual future look like? My current view is that Bitcoin's the only blockchain that matters. Actually, there's a lot of experimentation occurring elsewhere, but I think well, the blockchain I for think contracts. The results, there's so many other things. blockchains can do many other things, but currency. So they, agreed. They there's a lot of theory out there, yeah. but. I mean, we'll flesh this out in the next conversation, but I just think that a lot of that experimentation will end up resting on higher layers of Bitcoin. So I think Bitcoin becomes like the de facto global final settlement base money network. And then you can anchor into that network all kinds of applications. You can do all kinds of things. So, I, you know, that's my thesis at the moment. Um, it's something we could probably talk about for a really long time. But I yeah, want- in any case, you're right about one thing. We're not going to see very fast moves between these cryptocurrencies as soon as mm. we get a bit stable, right? They, they they run up and down right now because that's comparative to other currencies, fiat currencies that we don't mm-hmm. uh, I think you're not going to see Bitcoin quickly be overtaken by some by some alternative. You might gradually see some some kind of other system come along. And I think at the end of the day, people will then trade with the baskets. Bitcoin probably centered to it. And have other other currencies in there, and that's going to be the most inflation-proof, stable value you can have over time. That's very likely. That's why Coinbase and these companies are growing so quickly at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll get into it, but I, I mean, I think the like even terms like inflation just go away. Inflation, monetary policy, policy makers, these things are just going to go away because when you can't control the money, all of a sudden, to your earlier point in politics, like I don't care about your political opinions. If you can't mess with my property or my money, say and do whatever you want. Like you can't hurt me, you can't take my stuff. I don't care what you say. So yeah, and everybody else who interacts with us, with you and the other guy who attacks you, right? Mm-hmm. All of them will trust you and not him. Right. It's not only that he cannot he cannot fuck up your property. Yeah. But you're also more credible. You are the guy who walks into the nightclub and passes the queue. Because well, that's what's more credible. That's right? what's so interesting is because yeah. it almost, as you're saying, like it's an incentive to be honest. Because like, yes. like if you, if someone can attack your property or your body, you might say something that you don't believe to try and keep them off your back. But if you're all of a sudden, you know, more or less invulnerable to them, then you're just going to speak your mind freely. So there's an interesting incentive change where the technology kind of changes our behavior. And that's a whole nother rabbit hole, but um, you're right. I'm very fascinated, very fascinated by where this all goes. And I appreciate you talking to me about the digital age because there's just, again, there's a lack of literature out there about it. And so I'm really glad you're writing about it and thinking about it. 
Uh, we'll definitely have you back for a longer conversation because I think we could just <laughs> talk for hours here. Yeah. Do you know you- where I'm at? And, and keep me informed. And I love to, I've got 124,000 Twitter followers in Europe. I love to feed them about your show and about your work. So just to send me stuff over here because I'm a fan of yours. So we keep, we keep that and keep it in the back of your head that I'm cool with things that they are. And when, when we get to a point where suddenly, yeah, this could be a really good conversation between Breed Love and Bart. Let's do it. Perfect. Absolutely. Uh, I'm in. Per- I'm in. Perfect. Tell people. Please let my audience know where they can find out more about you and your work. Okay. So um, uh, I would recommend people to check out the books Synthism and Digital Libido. And you can find them in Book Depository because nobody buys books at Amazon any longer. Um, and they, they're available as audiobooks and everything. So Digital Libido and Synthism are part of a trilogy. The third one, Process Event, comes out next year. This is where I put all, you know, my best storytelling into these books because it's really about the kind of stories human beings tell about the world. Synthism is the book on the future. That's why the subtitle is, uh, it's about the God in the internet age. It's, it's about creating God in the internet age. And, and that's essentially what the name of technology, if you, you extrapolate on technology all the way into the future, you have no other name for it, but we're creating God. Mm. That's what all technologies are doing. And Maybe Bitcoin is God's currency, you know, <laughs> and and because it's the end of currency, you know, and then that's God. The end of the line is always God. The perfection is always God. So um, the digital libido book is about now, the state we're in right now. And when we left the history book as a third book, because Hegel would have done it that way. He would have written first a book on the future, then a book on the current state, and then he would have rewritten history as a last statement. And that's what we're rewriting history at the moment as well. The entire history of culture and civilization itself, the last 10,000 years, mm. we're rewriting it. And we're of course now looking through through the blockchains and the algorithms as mm. if the, the goal had always been the civilization of one day build these things. Perfect, wow. All right, well, Alexander, thanks so much and uh, talk to you again soon.